Well, we finished 1 Thessalonians last week uh, with the message about the pastor and his people. I hope if you weren't here, and especially if you're a church member, that you'll go back and listen to that message. Um, I think it'll be a help, especially looking into the transition here in a couple of months. But now we look upon 2 Thessalonians. This book was written approximately six months after the first letter, maybe even sooner than that. Paul wrote it from the same place that he wrote the first letter. He was sitting in Corinth when he penned the second letter to the church he started in Thessalonica. Now the reason he wrote the second letter so quickly was because he got word uh, that a few of the problems that he addressed in his first letter had actually gotten worse. Those problems are threefold. Number one, the persecution of this young church had intensified. You remember that they, they, they converted to Christianity, and Paul wrote a lot about suffering and persecution to, to warn them about the fact that it's going to be bad. And there's going to be friends that forsake you and family members that ostracize you and you you might lose your jobs and you might get imprisoned and you might get shut down from time to time. You need to know how to respond and how to thrive through suffering. But when he got word back how they were doing after that first letter he wrote, the word was this, it's gotten worse. The persecution has intensified. Problem number two, the confusion about the return of Christ had increased. Do you remember that they thought when their their loved ones died, they thought their loved ones were going to miss the rapture? Paul clarified that in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Then they thought they had missed the rapture because their persecution was so intense, it felt like what Paul told them the tribulation was going to be like. And so Paul wrote back and and, and had to tell them again in chapter 2, we'll discuss it next week, that you haven't missed the rapture. And then problem number 3, and he addressed this, was the problem about work. Some church members were refusing to work hard and provide for themselves, and and it was almost preventative maintenance because the problem didn't seem too bad in 1 Thessalonians, but it actually had increased, and they hadn't heeded this warning, and it became a big problem, and he dedicates an entire chapter to giving a theology on work. And that's important. So what what Paul does in 2 Thessalonians, and it'll just be four messages, but what he does is he comforts them in persecution, he clarifies the doctrine of Christ's return, and then he corrects them regarding work. As I read through the epistle several times, it doesn't take long, I began to look for a theme that, that, that would be woven through the entire book, and it seems like there was one, and it's going to serve as the title for this short series that... I'm calling stand fast. It's as though Paul is telling this young church, hey, you've been a thriving church, and I commended you on that with five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, but now it's time to become a strong church. It's like he's telling this young church, hey, Thessalonians, things are getting worse around you. And as they get worse, you must get strong. Stand fast. And that's my burden to you to to get across during preaching the book of 2 Thessalonians. Hey, our world like theirs, it isn't getting any better. I don't have to tell you that. It's getting worse day by day by day. And as our world gets worse, listen to me, the church must get strong. If there's ever a time in our history when our world and our community needs to see a church that is standing fast, it's right now. If there's ever a time 
in our history where, where our world and our community needs to look upon something that is steadfast and something that is unmovable and someone that is always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's the church of Jesus Christ and the time is right now. That's my burden for us to stand fast tonight. We'll talk about in suffering. And then we'll talk about standing fast in the truth. And we'll talk about standing fast in prayer. And then we'll talk about standing fast in work. Paul begins the entire theme of chapter 1. And he tells them to stand fast in suffering. Man, it seems like this, this idea of suffering has been the topic of the pulpit at Fellowship Baptist Church the last two weeks or so. Brother Mike preached on Doubting God's love out of the book of Malachi during times of suffering. The last two Sunday mornings, pastors preach on how to get through suffering, the kind of suffering you'll never truly get over. And 2 Thessalonians demands that I preach on the same topic. When this kind of thing happens from the pulpit, I'm convinced God has a message for us. It's either that there are a lot of people that need it in their current suffering, or this makes me nervous. God's preparing us for suffering. In a lot of cases, that's what happens with preaching. It doesn't land right where you are in life, but it's preparing you for tomorrow. And maybe God's doing that in some way. I told you that their suffering had increased. It has intensified. And what Paul's going to do in chapter 1, he's going to teach them, he's going to teach us. Three ways, or three things we need in order to stand fast in suffering. Read along with me in the first four verses to start. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, Timotheus, that's Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Paul says this first of all, stand fast in suffering by having your heart stabled in the faith. You see, Paul began his letter by commending them for their willingness to stand fast in the faith. Their effectiveness in doing so, even though their persecution had intensified, that means that their fellow church members, more of them and more of them were being killed and imprisoned for their faith, more so than in 1 Thessalonians. That means that more of them had been ostracized from their families for converting to Christianity. It, it meant that they had to be increasingly secretive about their church services because they were being investigated more often by the city officials. Now you would think, that a continuance of this kind of persecution would weaken their faith over time, but it didn't. According to Paul, their, their love was still abounding. Their faith was still growing. Their patience and hope was still enduring. And that's remarkable to me. He said they stood fast because they had a heart, an inward man that was stabled in the faith, so much so that Paul used this church as an example on his missionary travels. When he spoke to other churches, he said, man, we glory in how you have handled and, and remained steadfast in the midst of your suffering. Now, don't miss this. They didn't have this kind of heart stabled in the faith simply because of their suffering. They had this heart before their suffering. 
How do I know that? Because the same three virtues he commended them for six months later in 2 Thessalonians is the same way he opened up 1 Thessalonians. That triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, that was our first message out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. He said, you're thriving in these areas. In other words, he's saying, because you already had a heart that, was, that, was, that had a growing faith and, and a heart that was full of abounding love and a heart that was full of enduring patience, you have been stabled in the sunshine so that when the storm came, you would be steadfast. Question. What's the difference? What's the difference between a Christian who remains steadfast in suffering and the Christian who gives up and walks away from the Lord because of suffering? What's the difference? The difference is found in the heart. The Christian that has developed and maintained and nurtured the inner man the Christian who has kept their heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23, is the Christian who will remain steadfast through suffering. The perfect illustration is the one that Jesus closed his Sermon on the Mount with in Matthew chapter 7. He used the illustration of two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand, and he told the story that, that the, the house was built on the rock. When the storm came, it was stable. The one that was built on the stand, sand, when the storm came, it was unstable. Of course, he's using that as an analogy for our life. The house is a representation of our life, and Jesus is teaching us a valuable truth. By stabling our hearts with the Word of God, we are stabling our lives for the storm. That means that the ability, watch this, to stand fast in the storm starts on the inside. Did you hear me? You would do well to develop a growing faith and an abounding love and an enduring patience while the sun is shining. So that when life gets dark and the storm comes, you'll be able to stand fast. I'm talking about when you get the unexpected phone call that my parents got. When you get a shocking diagnosis from the doctor. When your child breaks your heart, when your employer lays you off, when your best friend betrays you, a stable heart will help you to stand fast because a heart that is nurtured in the sun will be a life that survives the storm. So through Paul's commendation of the Thessalonians, I think we learn that we can stand fast in suffering when we too have a heart that is stabled in the faith. But then he uses verses 5 through 10 to address a second way that we can stand fast in suffering. I'll say it this way. Stand fast in suffering by having your mind settled in the truth. Now look up here. Before we get to verses 5 and 10, I, I need to set this context. Because one of the things that we can so easily begin to question in the midst of suffering is God's fairness. Okay, Mike, Mike addressed something that we can question in the book of Malachi. That's God's love. Some people don't doubt God's love, though, Brother Mike, during suffering. They don't. But they do doubt God's fairness. They really question whether or not God is just. And here's what that is based upon. When we suffer in our humanity, we tend to compare our lives as believers to the lives of unbelievers. And if we're honest, here's what we see so often. The righteous, the faithful, and the saved are suffering, while the wicked, the unfaithful, and the lost are prospering. And so in our humanity, it causes us to ask ourselves, or at least to think to ourselves, that's not fair. If God was really just, then why are the faithful suffering while the wicked are prospering? 
And that thought is nothing new. King David wrote songs about struggling with that thought. And the musician Asaph wrote, I think, Psalm 73 about that very thought. And the prophet Habakkuk wrote an entire book about his doubts of God's fairness. And here the Thessalonian believers are. And their perspective of God's fairness had to have been tainted and skewed. You know why? Because they saw their idolatrous family members and their sinful co-workers and their wicked city officials enjoying their lives and freedoms while they had to go to church in secret. While they were being beaten and imprisoned and killed and while they were losing relationships with their family members and friends that they loved so much. That's why Paul wrote verses 5 through 10. To teach them that you must understand in your mind the truth of God's righteous judgment. Or else you're going to point your finger to heaven and you're going to say, God, that isn't fair. What truths then fill our mind about God's righteous judgment or should fill our mind? Paul starts with this. God will give rest to the faithful. Look at verse 5. Which, what is which? He's talking about their persecutions. Which is a manifest token or evidence of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Look up here. These Thessalonian believers, they were no longer welcome in the city they were raised in. Paul and Silas got ran out. They had to worship in secret or else they would get ran out. But Paul reminds them here that one day they will be counted worthy citizens of a better city. The kingdom of God. A place where they will never be ran out. A place where they will never suffer. A place where they will never be persecuted. Then look down at verse 7 because he reminds them that it gets better. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Go down to verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints... And to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed in that day. Watch here. He said, because you're saved, because you're believers, you may suffer now, but you will rest later. The word for rest in verse 7 often describes the releasing of a bowstring. The picture is someone that has that bow drawn back. It's under tension. And it's under pressure, and it's under stress. I remember growing up, and I, I would often uh, go to Toys R Us in Amarillo or something like that, and, and I would get one of those bone arrows and the Indian feathers. You know what I'm talking about? My brother would get the cowboy guns, and I would be the, the Indian. And I remember that, that those were so easy to pull. And then my brother got a real bow, and, and they had me pull it, and I, I, I just I couldn't get it back. I said, I need you to fix that for me. Make it easier for me. I couldn't get that sucker back. It's kind of a muscle you have to build that apparently writing sermons and singing songs doesn't build. <laughs> but when you get that back, a lot, of, a lot of times, bow hunters, I've watched some of my brother's videos, I mean, he'll hold that sucker back for a minute or two minutes because you only have so much time to pull when, when you won't distract the deer or whatever. And then when, when you release that arrow, it's like there's instant relief. No more tension and no more pressure and no more stress. And I think that's what Paul's trying to get across to the Thessalonians, that you are under tension right now. And you're under stress right now. And you're under suffering right now as a believer. But one day you will experience relief. 
One day when you take your last breath and you go into eternity in heaven, it's like, it's like that, that, that bowstring will be released and you'll have relief from your enemies and relief from your persecution and relief from your disappointment. And I want you to know, church, that one day we will have our rest too. One day very soon Jesus Christ will rapture us out of here and we will begin to experience the eternal rest we've been promised. Rest from death and rest from disease and rest from discouragement and rest from violence and rest from injustice and rest from racism and rest from rebellion and rest from riots and rest from broken hearts and broken homes and broken bodies and betrayal and abuse and sadness and sickness and disappointment and sin and flesh and the devil. The believers may suffer now, but they will rest later. Which is totally opposite of the wicked's fate. They will rest now, but they will suffer later. Which brings us to Paul's second truth that should fill our mind. God will bring retribution to the wicked. Look at verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Verse 8. Here's how he'll do it. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. Watch, Paul made it clear. And my tone of this is way different because I don't think we should rejoice in the fact that anybody's going to be punished in hell. But Paul made it clear that one day, those persecutors in Thessalonica will be the persecuted. They will suffer an everlasting punishment. And fire, in the, the lake of fire is bad enough, but the phrase that's the worst is separation from God. Their present suffering, talking about the Thessalon, Thessalonians' present suffering, caused them to question God's fairness. So what Paul did is he reminded them, it doesn't seem fair now, but God will one day make it fair. He will one day balance the books. And those righteous and faithful, even though they suffer now, will be on the right side of God's judgment later. Here's the application. If you want to stand fast in your suffering, listen, you must realize that this world is the only hell you'll ever know. You must realize that eternal rest is promised to you. You must realize and fill your mind with this truth that one day you will be on the winning side. God will make things right. And if you don't fill your mind regularly with those truths, especially during times of suffering, you'll be dominated by doubt of God's good judgment. Especially when you compare your situation to the seemingly prosperous situations of lost co-workers and lost family members, and lost friends who wouldn't even come to church on a Sunday morning, let alone a Sunday night. Maybe you've heard the story of an encounter between two farmers. One a believer, the other an atheist. At harvest time, the atheist fields were rich with crops. The Christian's fields were hardly producing a thing. And so that antagonistic atheist taunted the Christian by telling him that apparently it didn't pay to serve God. And I love the Christian farmer's reply. He said, it does pay to serve him, but you must remember that God does not always settle his accounts in October. 
one of the most difficult things to do when walking through painful times is to keep the proper perspective. If we fill our minds with this truth, then like the farmer, we will trust that one day our labor for the Lord will be rewarded with rest and we will reap a harvest of relief from our enemies, from wickedness, and from suffering. I love that. I just want to tell you, harvest is coming for us. It's coming for us. And harvest is coming for the wicked. I'll take heaven later for an eternity and hell now rather than having heaven now and hell later for an eternity. I'm glad I'm a Christian. Paul teaches us you can stand fast in suffering when you have your heart stable in the faith, your mind settled in the truth. But look at the first word of verse 11 where he starts the next section of the text. That first word is the word wherefore. What does that mean? It means he's not done. It means that he has more to say based on what he's already said. Now watch this. I want you to know what he's doing with the text. What he did in verses 5 through 10 is he took the Thessalonian believers on a journey to their heavenly home. But before they could get too comfortable there, he immediately brings them back to Thessalonica. Because all through his writings, Paul has a unique way of transitioning from heavenly discussions about the future that comfort us to the daily responsibilities of present life. You know why? Don't miss this. Future promises, like eternal rest, must always be met by practical obedience. So Paul ends by praying for them. And in his prayer, we see the last thing we need in order to stand fast in suffering, and it's this. Stand fast in suffering by using your hands to serve for the glory of God. Look at verse 11 and 12. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Why? Here's why. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want this to make sense to you. What Paul did in verses 1 through 4 is he addresses who they were. Their heart. He said you've got to have the right heart to stand fast in suffering. Then he addresses them 5 through 10, what they thought, their mind. You've got to think right if you want to remain steadfast in suffering. And now he addresses their, their, the issue of what they were to do, their hands. In other words, when they were suffering, perhaps they would have asked this question, what are we to do now? I get what our future looks like. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for telling us that we have a good heart and it's gotten us this far and will continue to help us press forward. But man, how do we take our next step when our loved ones are dying? When our deacons and our other leaders are, are being persecuted and martyred for the faith and we have no idea if we're next, what are we to do? And Paul tells them this, you are to serve through your suffering. He prays. That in the midst of their suffering, they would live or serve in a manner worthy of their calling. And he, he specifically prayed that they would do that by, number one, pursuing goodness. And then he prayed that God would give them the power to serve him by faith. So that the name of God may be glorified. Let me tell you, in essence, what Paul's saying. 
now that you know that your future is secure, don't forget that God is still in, at work in you and he still has a work to do through you even while you suffer. Now hang with me. Because it's natural in our suffering, is it not? For us to long for heaven. Come on, isn't it natural for that? But we can't forget that we have a work to do until we get there. And doesn't it make sense that if we have such a glorious future that awaits us like eternal rest? Doesn't it make sense then that until we get to encounter that glorious future that we would do everything we can, every conceivable thing to bring glory to his great name? How do we do that? Live your life in such a way that is consistent with the calling of sanctification and holiness that God has put on your life as a believer. Don't let your suffering cause you to react in an unholy way. Rather, use it as a platform through which you can glorify the name of Jesus and respond to your suffering in a way that is worthy of your calling as a Christian. You know how else? Pursue goodness. Find something good to do, verse 11 says, and do it. No better biblical example than Joseph. If anyone suffered, it was that young man. Starting at age 17, his own blood brother sold him out to slavery. Threw in a pit to die. Lied to their father about what they did. Joseph could have hung himself. And instead, you know what he did? He went to the palace and he served. He found something good to do and he did it so much so that he rose to the manager of Potiphar's house. He was falsely accused thereafter and got thrown in prison, even forgotten in prison. And what did he do while he was in prison? He worked for God. He interpreted a dream. He could have hung himself. He could have starved himself. He could have drowned in his own self-pity. But he found something to good do and he did it. And it wasn't just in the palace, and it wasn't just in the prison. It was in power that he did the same thing, because that when his brothers came back, because there was a famine in the land, and Joseph had risen through his service to a position of power, I guarantee you, when he saw his brothers again for the first time in years, the brothers that sold him out, that, that suffering would have overwhelmed him again, and it did because he had to go and wash his face. He was in so much grief. And in that moment, you know what he could have done? He could have done evil. With his power, he could have leveraged it to destroy his own brothers. But even when that suffering overwhelmed him once again, what did he do? He pursued goodness. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for my good. And he fed the brothers that threw him in a pit. And when something happens to us, suffering, do not let it sideline you from service. Let it activate you to serve. Because I have found that the, a great remedy for a hurting heart is to do something good for somebody else that's hurting. Maybe it's not something physical you can do, but you know what, else, you, know what you can do that will probably make even more of a difference? You can pray. You can pray for hurting people. Covenant with them together for God. I know you're going through your own battles. I know you're walking through your own fire. I know you're sailing through your own storm. But so is the person you go to church with. So is the person you work with. 
So is the fellowship Bible class leader that teaches you a lesson. So is the children's church worker and the greeter and the team ministry uh, volunteer that you serve alongside of. You aren't the only one in this place that is suffering tonight. Not the only one. And if you want to bring glory to God's name and serve through your suffering, you start by saying, I'm going to react the right way. And number two, I'm going to find something good to do and I'm going to do it. You don't give up. Don't give up. Well, that seems impossible. And that's why Paul prayed. God, give him the power to do it. Because there's no way I can serve for somebody else when I'm drowning in my own suffering. And you're exactly right. But faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Yeah. How do we stand fast in suffering? Here's how. By having a stable heart, a settled mind, and serving hands. So as we close... Let me ask you some questions. How is your heart? Are you stabling your heart while you're in the sun so you'll survive when the storm comes? Better yet, is there anything about the last storm you went through that revealed something about your heart that needs attention? Because storms don't just build character, they reveal it. And what about the last disappointment you faced? What did it reveal about your character that you need to improve on? Are you ready for a storm if it were to come tonight? Is your heart stabled enough in the faith that the winds wouldn't blow your house down? That depends on the condition of your inner man. How's your mind? Are you struggling with legitimate doubts about God's fairness? Are you struggling to have a biblical perspective of how God is dealing with you as compared to how he's dealing with somebody else? Fill your mind with truth. How are your hands? Are you serving through suffering? Are you actively pursuing the good of others? Or are you only focused on your own problems? I think if any of those questions are honestly answered, that you might need to find a place at the altar tonight. And say, God, help my heart. Because I found myself in the sunshine not giving any attention to the inner man. And God, forgive me for wanting to run to you just when the winds pick up. God, help me to strengthen my heart now. Oh, God, forgive me of a skewed perspective. God, forgive me of pouting through my suffering and not serving through it. And sometimes I think that we, we use the altars just as a place of confession. And rightfully so, like they are a place of confession. But here's where we miss the boat as a church sometimes in, tr in terms of the invitation. It's also a place of intercession. And so some, sometimes Christians think, I don't need to go to the altar because I, I think I'm doing good with my heart and my mind and my hands. But who around you is suffering? Who can you pray for tonight? See, the altar is a place of intercession too. You got parents that are suffering? You, got, you know a marriage that is suffering? You've got a grandchild that's suffering. You've got someone who just lost their job. You know someone who just lost their job. I, I saw Miss Sheila go over and, and find comfort and, 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 and help from Miss Candy during the song service, her fellowship Bible class leader. I saw them praying together, interceding with, for and with one another. 
at the altar. Just last Sunday morning, I saw three aged men take a knee at the altar together, arms around each other with one young man with them, interceding for one another. If I'm real honest with you, our church isn't great at that. We don't use the altars for intercession. It's either we confess or we stay in our seat. It's either, hey, we're not suffering, we're good. Well, why don't you think tonight, is there anyone around me, literally, where you could get out of your comfort zone and say, man, I'm just going to go grab that brother. I don't care what people think. I don't care how nervous I am or how weird it feels. I hope that it just stops feeling weird about those kind of things. And I'm talking about emotionalism and hype and, and weirdness. I, I'm talking about brotherhood and sisterhood within the family of God. We call ourselves the fellowship family. We just don't act like it all the time. And I, I, I think that maybe you could either come pray for someone or with someone or certainly use it as confession regarding your heart, mind, and your hands. God help us. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.